0: In 1962, a household of six people were all murdered in a single night, seemingly one by one. The family, which managed a farm in the rural lands around Munich, were well known by neighboring farmers and didn't seem to have any enemies. After they were killed and the local authorities arrived, they noticed a few important details. That the killer or killers had occupied the house for a few days after committing the crimes. And also, that nothing of significant value was taken from the home, including the family's savings or anything that could have been considered sellable. The rudimentary police procedures and the lack of forensic applications would, unfortunately, not work in favor of the murdered family in finding their killer. It seems that the theories that came about as who did the deed were little more than hearsay and grumbling rumors from the locals that was probably more gossip than anything else. Hello, and welcome back for another episode of The Human Delicatessen. It took me a bit over the usual week to bring this episode to you guys, probably a couple weeks, partly because I wanted to dedicate spending spring break at home relaxing, and partly because, in the professional and personal field of procrastination, I'm somewhere around semi-pro. I hope you guys all had a good spring break, though, and that you stayed safe and had some fun, or at least some much-needed and very well-deserved R&R. Or maybe you were more like me and had a satisfying staycation instead, With gas prices the way they've been, that might have been your only option. Either way, I hope you had a good time and welcome back. It's just a little too bad that I don't have a story with a happier ending for you guys today. But let's head on over to the German countryside and discuss a six-fold murder that remains one of the most well-known crimes in German history. Okay, before we get going, let me just put a little disclaimer here. Pronouncing names of foreign origin has never been my strong suit, so just bear with me as I'm probably gonna butcher a few of these. In Kaifek, Germany, about 40 miles northwest from Munich, there used to sit a family farm called Hinter Kaifek, which literally translated to Behind Kaifek. Not much creativity there. In 1922, the family that lived there were known as the Grubers, Andreas Gruber, who was 63, and his wife, Cecilia, who was about a decade his senior. Their 35-year-old daughter, Victoria, and her children, Cecilia and Joseph, who were 7 and 2, had moved back with them a few years prior. The family also employed a live-in maid, Maria Baumgartner, who had started working for them very recently. The family lived a very simple but successful life, growing a combination of rye, oats, beets, and potatoes, depending on the rotation of their farms, or their fields that they were tending to. Back in October of the previous year, 1921, the family started noticing a few increasingly strange events around the property. Events that, by modern practice, I'm sure all of us would put, you know, be put a little on edge. Their previous maid had suddenly quit because she claimed she repeatedly heard strange and disturbing sounds from the attic every so often and believed that the house was haunted. And that's enough to make me run. Andreas at one point had found a Munich-based newspaper on the property that neither he, his wife, or his daughter had purchased. He thought at first that the postman must have dropped off the paper at the wrong address by mistake. But he was later found out that no one in the area, none of the other farmers, actually had a subscription to that paper, so there'd be no reason for it to be even in that vicinity. During that winter, Andreas also discovered footprints in the snow that came from a nearby forest and seemed to indicate that the one who made the tracks had entered their house or their farm, I'm not sure which, uh, through one of their windows, which is, again, quite startling. That night even, they heard footsteps up in the attic, but when Andreas went upstairs to investigate, he didn't find anybody. He even told several people later on and the days afterward about the possibility that their intruder was living in their attic, perhaps a transient, but he never followed up with a report to the local police, something which, spoiler warning, might have saved him and his family. On the afternoon of March 31st, which was a Friday, The new maid, Maria Baumgartner, arrived at the farm for her first day of work. Maria was escorted to the home of her new employer by her sister who left after a brief visit. She would be the last person to see her sister Maria or the family alive. Sometime that evening, Andreas and his wife, Cecilia, were lured into the barn by someone or something causing a commotion inside and were murdered just as soon as they entered, struck over the head with a heavy and blunt object. It's thought that Andreas entered first and his wife went in to check on him a few minutes later, unaware that something was wrong. When little Cecilia, Victoria's seven-year-old daughter, went inside the barn to look for her grandparents, she was quickly and violently murdered by an unknown assailant. Victoria couldn't find her daughter or her parents around the farm, so she too made her way to the barn to search for them and would be summarily killed along with the others, her body placed in the corner of the barn with her dead parents and her daughter and covered with loose hay. The killer then made their way into the house or the living quarters of the farm and killed two-year-old Joseph who had been sleeping in his crib. Then, lastly, was the maid Maria was lying down in her bedchamber after her first day of service. She was killed the same manner as everyone else while she slept. The next morning, which was a Saturday, Hans and Edward Sorovsky, two brothers who traveled in the area to sell coffee door to door, had pulled up to the farm owned by the Grubers and knocked on the door so they could take Andreas's usually scheduled order for coffee grains, but no one answered. After a cursory look around the property, they left, Figuring that the family must be out somewhere on an early errand, maybe out in the fields or out to town. When the family didn't show up for Sunday worship and little Cecilia didn't show up for school the next few days, people started to take notice. On April 4th, friend and neighbor Albert Hoffner went out to the farm to help Andres fix his food chopper, which looks a lot like one of those old hand crank meat grinders. That he had out in his barn's machine room which was a side room in the back of the barn with its own separate entrance albert hung around for a while but with no sight of andreas his wife or his daughter and grandchildren albert decided to help himself to fixing the food chopper on his own which he did over a four-hour period and then left around 3 30 that same afternoon a lot of people were figuring out by then that the family had been missing or at the very least, were being very quiet and antisocial for the last few days, and people were starting to get a little concerned. Lawrence Schlittenbauer decided to send his two sons, 16-year-old Johan and nine-year-old Joseph, over to Hinterkaifeck to see if they can make contact and check in with the family. The two boys came back sometime later, telling their pa that there didn't seem to be anybody around the farm, and it looked as if it was just deserted. Lawrence went back to a little bit later in that evening with a couple of his friends, Michael Pohl and Jacob Siegel. They got to the farm and decided to first check inside the barn, which someone seemed to have loosely barred from the inside. The three men kicked at the door until the wood plank that held it close finally broke. Once inside, they found the decomposing bodies of Andreas, Cecilia his wife, daughter Victoria, and his granddaughter. It would only be a few moments longer. Until they made it into the house and found Chambermaid Maria and Joseph both dead and covered with a dress and bedsheet, respectively. Lawrence sent one of the other men into town to alert the authorities, and a local inspector would be assigned. In the time between the discovery of the bodies and the arrival of the authorities, the investigation was hampered and made way more difficult because several people had trampled and contaminated the crime scene during that time, including neighbors who had no business being there other than to catch a glimpse. People who had moved bodies and items around had even used the kitchen to cook a meal, which just blows my mind. I can kind of picture a bunch of neighbors just kind of milling around and standing around in the Gruber's kitchen and living area, poking around, looking at their stuff and snooping, and then a few of them suddenly decided that they feel a little hungry and decide to fire up a stove for a little supper to go along with today's, today's events. A physician was brought in a day later and performed the autopsies right there on the property. There was no bloody weapon on the farm, but it was suggested that a garden pickaxe, which Andreas was known to have owned, but was also missing, was likely used on all of the victims. Andreas and his wife and daughter were beaten severely to the point that Cazilia's skull—I think Cazilia or Cecilia—Cecilia, Cecilia. sorry, geez, consistency here—to the point that Cecilia's skull was caved in, and Andreas's face could only be described as shredded. Victoria had suffered multiple blows to the head, as well as bore marks that indicate that she was strangled at the time of her death, which to me. Kind of suggests that perhaps she was the killer's main target. The younger Cecilia was found with clumps of her own hair in her hands, indicating that she may have been alive and suffering a trauma-induced seizure for several hours after the assault and had pulled her own hair out while she was slowly dying covered in hay, which is just heart-wrenching to imagine. The police first thought robbery might have been the cause, but it was found that nothing that belonged to the Grubers was stolen or missing, especially a considerable amount of money that Andreas had stowed away. They also found that the killer had apparently been living around the house for a few days after the family was murdered. There was evidence that the killer had fed the livestock, the family dogs, and had even cooked a few meals in the kitchen using some of their bread and meat from the pantry. I'm guessing that's before the neighbors helped themselves. Without much in no the way of motive, the police tried to get together a list of suspects, many of them sourced from local townsfolk who never passed on an opportunity to spread some gossip. Lawrence Schlittenbauer, the neighbor who discovered the bodies, well one of them, was considered a suspect for a while, although he was very quickly afterward cleared of any suspicion because his proven alibi puts him in no way near the house at the time of the murders. This is where it gets kind of crazy as far as this guy goes. It was further rumored, but then confirmed, that Lawrence was indeed Victoria's secret lover and also the father to Victoria's illegitimate son Joseph. What added to that initial suspicion was when the two neighbors, Michael and Jacob, told the authorities that after the three of them had to bust down the barn door to find the bodies, It was Lawrence who pulled out a house key and then walked walked over to the house proper, unlocked the main door, and went alone inside first. Michael and Jacob told the detectives that Lawrence had allegedly said that he was going in to check on his son. And he's the one who found Maria and Jacob. Or Joseph, sorry. Even though Lawrence was cleared of any involvement, he was still harassed by other local farmers and townsfolk, accusing him of killing the family or knowing who did. People told stories that Lawrence had the family taken out of the picture once Victoria had started to demand financial support for their child. Before he passed away in 1941, Lawrence had filed and won several civil lawsuits against people in town who went out of their way to slander him in public and name him as the murderer. Even more gossip and rumor mongering resulted in some of the people from town spreading the idea that Victoria. And her father Andreas were involved in an incestuous relationship, and that her son Joseph was the result of it, and that he had murdered the whole family when his wife found out the quote-unquote truth of the matter and confronted him. This is obviously an immediately ridiculous story, uh, especially if you knew the family and knew what kind of people they were. Uh, you know, people who were who knew the family said that this was an, a preposterous, you know, accusation. Also, it's kind of impossible. That would mean that if the story is true, that means that Andres would have to have killed his entire family first, and then somehow savagely beat himself to death with the same weapon once that was done. Carl Gabriel, Victoria's estranged husband, was also a strong contender as being the killer. Perhaps he was furious that she had moved on and had another child from another man. But that theory was tossed out of the window almost immediately as soon as detectives found out that Carl had actually died in combat in France during World War I, either right before or right after Victoria had given birth to Caz- Cecilia in 1914. This also confirms that her two-year-old son Joseph was, could not be Carl's son, which further the rumors that were later confirmed that Lawrence was the father. Then there was two brothers, Adolph and Anton Gump, who were looked at as being possible suspects in part due to their affiliation to a certain paramilitary group made up of volunteers who fought against communists and Polish insurgents in the mid-years of the Weimar Republic, or Germany's Second Reich, shortly after the First World War. Um, and I say certain paramilitary group, these guys had a bad reputation. They were pretty much the pre-SS of the Nazi SS. They were actually the, like, the origin story of the SS. So they did have kind of an ugly uh, reputation around that time. In 1951, their sister, Cresencia, said on her deathbed that her brothers, Adolph and Anton, were the murderers on that farm. Anton was arrested, but Adolf died about seven years prior. Anton was later dismissed and the case against him was discontinued after no proof could be found that linked him or his brother to the murder and their sister wasn't alive to provide any other details. Basically all she did was point the finger and that's, that's really all she had to contribute. There was also Joseph Betts, uh, a traveling laborer. He had been finding work alongside another laborer, Peter Weber. In those days, men looking for work would travel either in groups or pairs to get work as farmhands, if not for money, then at least for some food and a soft place to sleep, kind of like George and Lenny, if you ever remember reading Of Mice and Men in School. Both of the guys struck up a conversation one night about the Hinter Hinterkaifeck farm, and... Weber brought up the rumors that the elderly couple who lived there had a sizable amount of money in the house, and he also mentioned how word on the street was that the old man, Andreas Gruber, was having an incestuous relationship with his own daughter. See, that rumors are still running even before they're dead. Weber proposed this idea that Joseph, that, to Joseph that maybe the both of them could strong arm the old man and his family and take the money for themselves. When Joseph told this story to the police after he found out about the murders, He said that when he didn't respond to Weber's suggestion that one night, Weber simply dropped the subject and they parted ways after a few jobs. I couldn't find confirmation on how the investigators followed up with that lead, but regardless, Weber was never considered a serious suspect. The former maid, the one who thought the place was haunted, made it known that she had a few suspicions of her own on who had killed her former employer and his family. She told the authorities that she suspected brothers Anton and Carl Beechler of the crimes having worked on the drug farm or worked on the farm during the previous potato harvesting season and therefore knew the property well and knew that the Gruber's had a small fortune stashed away somewhere. She also started that stated that two other brothers could have done it: Carl and Joseph Thayer. And if you're keeping track, that's the fourth Joseph I've brought up and the third call that I've mentioned. Not much creativity for names in those days. If all of these suspects sounds more or less like the detectives were grabbing for straws, you couldn't be that far off. None of the people that were suspected of committing the six count murder would ever be prosecuted, and no one would remain on that list for long before an alibi or general lack of evidence supported their removal. The unfortunate truth is that today, the case remains unsolved. Another unfortunate detail is that after all the bodies had been examined for an autopsy, their heads were removed shortly after and sent off to Munich for further study for any metaphysical clues that might exist. The rest of the remains were buried in a plot just a few miles away from their home in the town of Weidhoven, about 80 kilometers or 50 miles northwest of Munich. The farm was demolished, almost completely as is, with most of their belongings along with it. And a memorial in its place went up a few years later, surrounded by several green acres of farmland. There was nothing that the, that the, that the decapitated heads could tell the examiners, and several years passed with them still remaining in Munich, the heads, either to be continued for, for further study or because no one saw an immediate reason to return them to, to their bodies. Before the heads could be sent back to Whitehoven so they could be buried with the rest of their remains, World War II kicked off. It was was picking up speed, and the skulls would end up lost forever when the city was bombed on April 24th in 1944, which is just, I mean, tragic, of course. The war was terrible, but I mean, in the context of this story, the the skulls were lost. They're never found again. They're destroyed. By the end of this month, here this month. It's been a full century since the murders at Kaifek Farm took place, and it remains unsolved. So naturally, it's been relegated to the Cold Case Office at the First and Feldbrook Police Department, and remains one of the most infamous and well-known murder cases in German history. A spokesman for the police have stated fairly recently that a small team of investigators have been tasked with picking up the case and have confirmed that they have a strong theory as to who the killer was, but they do not plan to release the name of the supposed suspect as of yet in order to avoid dragging that person's name through the mud, or specifically the name of his surviving family, in the event that their suspicion either doesn't pan out or the required proof never surfaces. As depressing as it sounds, it's difficult to justify spending police funding for a 100 year old murder when there are no surviving relatives of the victims, so it's Possible and more than likely that the killer or killers will never be known or made public. An entire family wiped out in a single evening. The killer lived amongst their decomposing bodies for days afterward, warming himself by their fireplace, eating their food, sleeping in their beds, and feeding the family dog, even though that last one might be his only redeeming trait. There were no valuables missing, and nothing looked particularly ransacked or rummaged through, so if the killer knew that the family had some kind of money tucked away, he sure didn't seem that interested. During the farm's demolition, there were a few items that were found amongst the rubble that people who knew the family said couldn't have belonged to them, but those items were so common that they could hardly be suggested as belonging to the killer, things like a pocket knife or a handkerchief. Folks had also claimed that Mr. Gruber had been complaining for weeks prior to the murders that he had lost or misplaced a few spare keys to the house and to the barn, which fed to that speculation that whoever had killed him was familiar with the house, like a hired hand, laborer, or a neighbor. Forensic science in those days was pretty much in its infancy, especially out in the country, and with so many people trudging through the house, handling evidence and adjusting the bodies at an active crime scene there's little surprise that all they really had to go on was a few hunches and some rumors. It's a sad story, truly sad story, with a bitter ending and not a single ounce of justice to be had. I think in the future, I'm going to have to make sure that there's at least a happy-ish ending before I commit to an episode, otherwise I'm just going to keep bumming you guys out and I'll lose listeners. With that in mind, by next week, I'm going to try out a new category for these episodes that I hope you guys will enjoy. Cults. And my first cult episode is going to dig into this woman who named herself Mother God and her so-called New Age religious movement that she called Love Has Won. We'll find out how a 40-something-year-old McDonald's manager saw the light and inspired her to leave her family and her children out in Texas and start a cult out in Colorado where she convinced a few people that she was the reincarnated version of Jesus Christ of Joan of Arc and Cleopatra and that Donald Trump was her father in a past life. Claims of otherworldly powers, allegations of abuse and brainwashing, Soliciting members for donations and convincing them to pay for things like spiritual cleansings, ethereal surgeries, and mystical multivitamins. Yeah, so as far as cults go, that seems pretty par for the course. But putting those extreme details aside, what exactly defines a cult and what separates a cult from an established religion? That may be a bigger gray area than we realize or that we like to admit. As always, Thank you guys for tuning in like you have been every week. It feels so great to see the listener numbers grow, even if it's a little at a time. Be sure to tell your friends about the podcast and let them know that it's available on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. They can also follow my Human Delicatessen Facebook page where I post updates about upcoming episodes and I encourage everyone to send me some listener feedback because maybe, hopefully, one day I can get good enough at this to earn a few nickels to rub together. Many of us, myself included, seem to always count down the days until the weekend comes. As soon as Friday evening hits, we immediately try to find a way to escape and unwind and get away from all that clutter that we deal with Monday through Friday playing video games, napping to our heart's content, or busting out the barbecue pit in a case of beer. All good things. But I heard some advice recently that I thought was worth sharing. Instead of wasting the weekend trying to escape the life you have, try instead to spend the weekend building the life that you want. Try your hand at some home improvement projects. Spend some quality time with your kids and the things that they like to do. Remind your partner how much you love them if you have one. And if you're single, hey, try to mingle. So until next time, work on that dream life if you haven't started already, and I'll work on mine. As always, be excellent to each other, and I'll talk to you guys again real soon.